everyone. Uh, thank you all for being here. My name is Dave Rangaviz. I'm an appellate attorney in the Public Defender Division at CPCS, and I'm also a member of the BBA's Criminal Law Steering Committee, which organized today's webinar, and I will be introducing and moderating uh, today's event. Uh, the webinar uh, offers an expert perspective on developments in the area of bail and dangerousness hearings since the SJC's decision in Brangen. The webinar will focus on how Brangen changed the practice in the trial courts, and it will offer advice for litigating these hearings, both in light of Brangen and some updates now in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, our speakers come from both sides of the V, so you will get both the defense and prosecutorial perspectives on these important issues. And I will not be saying much of anything aside from this intro. I'll be moderating the Q&A, uh, which you should find at the bottom of your screen. And I would really strongly encourage you to ask questions, uh, both because it gives me something to do uh, and because we have some really amazing experts uh, in this area. And this is a great opportunity for you to be able to pick their brains. Um, and depending on some of the questions that we get, I may jump in to interrupt to ask uh, some of your questions. Uh, so with that, let me introduce our three speakers today. Uh, first, uh, we have Katie Naples Mitchell. Uh, who is a legal fellow at the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School. Uh, and before joining the Houston Institute, she was a law clerk for the Honorable Anne E. Thompson at the U.S. District Court for the District of New Jersey. Uh, David Sollett uh, currently serves as the chief of the cold case homicide unit of the Middlesex District Attorney's Office. Uh, he's had an extremely distinguished career in that office where he served at various times from the special counsel to the DA chief of the cyber protection unit and as the office's general counsel and he has also been the chief legal counsel at the executive office of public safety and security eops uh, he is presently the co-chair of the boston bar association's criminal law steering committee um, and finally we have meredith reeves uh, meredith is a trial attorney in the salem superior court office at the committee for public counsel services she represents indigent defendants charged with serious felonies in the essex county superior court before joining the Superior Court Office in 2014, she was a trial attorney in the Salem District Court Office at CPCS, and she's a graduate of Suffolk University Law School, where she worked at the Rappaport Center for Law and Public Service, the New England Innocence Project, and the ACLU Police Misconduct Pro Bono Project. So we have three great speakers today, and I'm excited for you to be able to hear from them. And we'll start with uh, Katie Naples Mitchell. Katie? Thank you so much, Dave, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm very glad to be here with you all. Um, I am going to start the presentation off by giving a bit of background about the landscape leading up to Brangen, um, and then kind of walk through what, at the state level, the data show about how practice has changed in the courts in terms of um, judicial decision-making around who gets held, why they're held, um, and, and when people are released at the state level, and then shift a little bit towards talking about a couple of other developments in kind of the landscape of pretrial detention and release conditions and um, where things stand around dangerousness, teeing up our two other panelists to give more in-depth kind of uh, both practice tips, but also more over policy uh, discussions around the state of the law around dangerousness. So I'm now gonna share my screen um, and go through a few uh, slides. I hope you all can see that. Um, so, I'm going to talk about 
this in the landscape of pretrial detention, which is my chief concern as um, a, a lawyer working on issues around race and justice in the Commonwealth, because we see astronomical disparities in terms of who is incarcerated, both pretrial and jail and in our state prison system. And a reminder that, of course, the pipeline between pretrial detention and subsequent incarceration, that the, the chances of being incarcerated on a sentence uh, increase dramatically when somebody is held pretrial. Um, so before Brangen, uh, the landscape was that, of course, we have a presumption of release written into our statutory law, um, which is meant to enshrine the presumption of innocence that exists under our both kind of state declaration of rights and, and broader constitutional framework. Um, but still, we saw, this is a study of more than 100,000 cases done by the Massachusetts Trial Court in 2016, um, looking back a couple of years, and found that out of all of these uh, cases where people were held on their bail amount that was imposed pre-trial um, in these 11,000 some cases, a substantial number of people were held on $5,000 bail or less, right? And, and even looking at the data um, more specifically, I mean, this is 69% of these 11,000 cases were held on, on $5,000 or less. So there was a huge problem of wealth-based detention that people could not afford to pay their bail and therefore that poor people were particularly being targeted with pretrial detention, which would lead to worse life and case outcomes, right? People lose their jobs when they're held in jail pretrial. People have their children taken away from them when they are held in jail pretrial. People have dramatic consequences um, when they're still presumed innocent under the law and may in fact be acquitted or have their case dismissed or no prost um, before it comes to a conclusion. Looking even in finer detail at the data, um, of those cases where 1,600 people were held on $500 or less and could not afford that bail, really most of those cases were held on $300 or less, right? 1,541 out of the 1,600 couldn't afford to pay $300 to get out of jail, um, <clears throat> which is 13.3% overall of the people who were held on an unaffordable bail amount. So these are the data that set us up for the Brangen decision in, the, in August 2017. Um, a couple of other facts I wanna talk about in the landscape. Bail is not the only driver of pretrial detention. So this chart comes from the Council of State Governments Justice Center, which did uh, an involved process of reviewing state level criminal legal system data um, with a state commission before and leading up to the omnibus criminal justice package that passed in the summer of 2018 in the state legislature. Um, and one of the things that they looked at is what's really keeping people in jail pretrial? What are the primary drivers in terms of charges and in terms of um, <clears throat> other conditions that might be preventing their release. So as you can see in this graphic, these are looking at three different counties, Middlesex, Essex, and Hamden County jails. Um, so it's not a full statewide uh, analysis, but it's a snapshot of sample counties. And you can see that in half of the cases bail was set and in half of the cases um, people were being held without bail or not bailable for another reason that will be explained on the next slide. And among those cases in which bail was set, a minority of people were actually released on their bail, right? A majority of people, 61%, could not be released on bail. Um, <clears throat> when people are held without bail or non-bailable, the main reasons that people can't actually get out are because they have a bail revocation, right, whether a 60 or 90 day hold from a, a breach of a pretrial condition or from um, a new arrest, uh, or a probation violation, a detainer basically pending a final probation hearing or an outstanding warrant. And many of those may be a default warrant. Um, we don't have a final breakdown of that. So 
thinking about when we're talking about bail reform, and this is something that the Special Commission on Bail Reform that was created under the 2018 legislation considered, you have to think more holistically about what are the other inputs that are also keeping people um, incarcerated, and how could we reduce the number of people that are incarcerated while also protecting the broader community um, and, and helping people live survivable lives and also come back to court. What are the ways that we could achieve those policy goals of keeping people safe, but also making sure that people aren't actually inhab inhibited from, um, from future safety and from future criminal activity because of uh, destabilizing forces from the criminal legal system itself. So this brings us to the overarching legal framework for bail and pretrial release or detention in Massachusetts. If many of you who are participating in this call are uh, in the criminal defense and prosecution world, these will be very familiar to you, so I'm going to be brief in my rundown. But basically, we have a bifurcated bail statute in the Commonwealth, right? We have um, our system of bail and pretrial release conditions under sections 57 and 58, 57 governing in superior court and 58 governing in district and municipal court. Um, the only lawful purpose of bail and conditions of release is generally to ensure return to court. Um, the court recently clarified in the case Commonwealth v. Norman decided this spring um, that the, there are additional the additional purpose of preserving the integrity of the judicial process is another kind of overarching uh, statutory purpose for conditions. Um, but in general, dangerousness is not an appropriate condition, uh, a consideration, excuse me. Right, we have this bifurcated statute where Section 58A, an entirely separate statutory provision, which has enhanced appropriately due process standards where a defendant is entitled to um, a modicum of an evidentiary hearing uh, in order to be detained in preventative detention pretrial, where they're adjudged to be uh, a threat to the community or to a specific person. That's what I mean when I say a bifurcated bail statute. So in 2017 and in 2018, the legislature and the SJC slightly adjusted our understanding of how bail can be used or, or how it should uh, be evaluated when an arraignment happens or any subsequent bail decision. So under Brangen, judges at that stage when bail is being set have the obligation now in an oral or written statement to confirm that they have considered the defendant's financial resources, to explain how the bail amount was calculated, and to state why risk of flight is so great that no alternative, less restrictive, financial or non-financial condition will suffice to bring that person back into court, and why therefore uh, we are okay constitutionally with the prospect of long-term pretrial detention for this person. <clears throat> There's a statutory addition as well. The criminal justice reform package added that there has to be a balancing and a weighting that judges do of understanding the harm that may befall that person's family or loved one from their long-term pretrial detention. So it's kind of an enhanced version of that third factor. Um, so how, how has this looked in terms of the data? Um, so this is a study that the trial court put out that is publicly available on the Research and Planning Division website. Um, <clears throat> which shows they did basically a study of pre-2017 uh, pre and post-2017. That's what these um, N numbers are here. You see pre-Brangen N is 173,000, post-Brangen N is 150,000, right? These are big case data sets of what was happening in terms of pretrial release decisions before Brangen was decided and after Brangen was decided. 
And you can see that the, the general numbers are pretty similar in terms of not held and released and released on bail, right? Roughly 80% of people are released on recognizance. So the, the good news is that in general, as a general matter, um, the courts are honoring the presumption of release that is enshrined in our statutory framework, right? 80% of people are released and not held. Then we move into the subsequent categories, which is really our kind of topic of concern at the moment um, for what should happen to people who are potentially facing more serious charges or um, <clears throat> have more serious criminal records. And those are the kinds of things that our other panelists are gonna talk about in detail. So you can see here that 9.4% of people were released on bail. So we've seen a very slight increase in the number of, in the percentage of people released on bail. Um, but, and fewer people were held a, a subject to bail but more people were held without bail. Um, and in fact, in general, the goal of the decision in, in Brangen was judges should be evaluating people's financial resources because we want to make sure that the unfairness perceived in wealth-based detention and people who are poor being unable to get out of jail at a disproportionate amount um, is redressed in our legal framework, right? And so we've seen a very slight decrease only in people held subject to bail. I think this is an overall 6% decrease, um, going from 45.6% pre-Brangen to 42.7% post-Brangen, right? So we haven't really solved the problem of wealth-based detention based on these numbers. Um, it's continuing. There are a number of, of flaws in the cash bail system in Massachusetts, and despite the uh, dictates of the criminal justice reform package, which created a special commission on bail reform, that commission chose to not take any further action with respect to uh, recommending specific legislative changes around the way that bail is set in the state of Massachusetts. Um, <clears throat> they released their final report at the end of December, and it did not make any, any real changes to any of these huge issues. So we still see that people are held in jail on bail amounts that they cannot afford to pay. We still see grave racial disparities in rates of pretrial detention and median bail amounts. Um, we know that affordability itself is a, con is a concept that doesn't really address the huge problems of bail, right? That if somebody is putting up their rent money um, in order to get a loved one released, right? A mother putting up her rent money so that her son can get out of jail. Is that bail affordable to the family if they then can't make rent the next month? This is something that our current legal framework does not address whatsoever. Um, we also know that bail commissioners and bail magistrates who are called to set bail or release conditions um, at the police station when somebody is arrested on a night or weekend um, have very limited oversight. And many of them are not lawyers and have um, make these really uh, impactful decisions about whether people get released or not um, right before. <clears throat> So then we've got lack of um, adherence to Brangen. So one of the things that I'm gonna go through very briefly is uh, I conducted a little research snapshot with uh, the Massachusetts Bail Fund last summer where we looked at in the kind of 10 months after Brangen was decided, were judges honoring the dictates of Brangen and how was that reflected on um, the reasons for ordering bail forms that judges fill out at arraignment, right? And we saw limited adherence to that, um, even though the trial court had changed the nature of the forms so that checking the first box on the district and municipal court form was, I consider the defendant's financial resources. Often that box was left unchecked, right? And so it's also possible that these were happening orally on the record, which is allowed for in Brangen, but in general, the involved 
three-step process that Brangan set out did not appear to be reflected on the written forms the judges fill out after arraignment. <coughs> in a number of cases of the bail fund's clients. And the Massachusetts Bail Fund, if you don't know, pays up to $500 bail, or at the time did, pay up to $500 bail um, for people who could not afford it, who were too poor to pay their bail. And so that is exactly the clientele that Brangan was supposed to somewhat address um, their situation. <clears throat> Then we've got what I refer to as the failure to appear fallacy, the idea that um, non-appearance in court reflects willful evasion of prosecution, which is often not the case. In many of the cases that I see, um, we see people who were not hanged in because they're in jail somewhere else, or people who are in the hospital, or people who are in treatment, or people who lacked childcare or transportation to get to court that day. And so the way that the law equates risk of flight with non-appearance in court um, is a problematic conflation in my in my policy opinion. Um, and, and our general focus at the Houston Institute is on eliminating pretrial detention as much as possible in order to actually honor and respect the presumption of innocence. So my screen appears to be a little frozen. Sorry about that. I'm trying to move forward quickly. So I'm not gonna go through um, all of these numbers in great detail, but I'm happy to make these slides available to participants after the fact. In general, I will say that it's undeniable that racial disparities are very significant in the Massachusetts criminal legal system. We see it at every stage, at every phase of criminal prosecution people of color are more likely to have higher charges, are more likely to face mandatory minimums, are more likely to have bail set, are more likely to have a higher bail set, are more likely to face incarceration in state prison than in a county house of correction, are once in, once in state prison are more likely to serve longer sentences. In our state, which is 78% white, 58% of people in our state prisons are people of color. Um, the, the racial disparities cannot be ignored. And especially at this moment in time, this is something that is of serious concern and in any effort to change or reshape criminal law um, is how will it affect uh, the structural racism that is woven into our system of policing, prosecution, and punishment. So these are some statistics from um, years earlier, and unfortunately we don't have the best up-to-date racial disparity statistics, but there are some that came from the trial court study that was released as part of the Special Commission on Bail Reform process, where you see white defendants are more likely to be released on personal recognizance than non-white defendants. And again, the trial court only uses the categories white and non-white. There is no breakdown with greater specificity of Black, Hispanic, Latinx, uh, South Asian, East Asian, that kind of granular detail does not appear anywhere in publicly available data released by the Massachusetts court system. But as, as I just spoke about, as was historically true and is still true after Brangan, non-white defendants are more likely to have bail set and generally have bail set at higher amounts. So we continue to see that. Hey Katie, could I, could I step in with a question? Yes. Um, so uh, I think we've seen in some of your slides that Brangan hasn't had a, a huge uh, you know, salutary effect on fixing some of these problems that I think the court was maybe intending. So we have a question of uh, uh, someone asking that they thought Brangan held that a defendant is not entitled to a bail amount that they can afford. Um, and I think I'll expand that out to, to ask, you know, what would it what would it mean to really honor what Brangan did hold uh, to make it more than just sort of a box checking exercise for the trial court? What what would you like What would you like to see the courts be doing to fix these problems you're talking about? 
Absolutely. That's a great question. So yeah, and I'm sorry if I, I don't think I stated that the court did hold that, but if there's confusion, I apologize. There is no right to an affordable bail. That is true. The court held that as a constitutional matter, people could be held um, on bail amounts that they could not afford. But in order to reach that conclusion, the judge has to go through that involved three-step process, right, of saying, I have considered the defendant's financial resources. I have uh, I'm justifying why I set the bail in this particular amount, right? I set the bail at $500. I'm setting the bail at $550. I'm setting the bail at $5,000. Here's the reason why that particular amount of money is what is necessary to ensure this person returns to court. Um, so again, there's no constitutional right, but there is this weighted process that the judge is supposed to be considering at arraignment of justifying the amount they impose and why no other alternative less restrictive, non-financial or financial conditions are sufficient to assure their return to court. Um, in terms of your question, Dave, of what really would we need to transform our bail system? I think in general, as a policy matter, and you can read more about this and stuff we've published on the Houston Institute's website, um, there is not good evidence that a financial condition is what brings people back to court. There just is not. And so what we should be doing as a legal system is some of the stuff that was in the 2018 package, like focusing on court reminders, right? We should be focusing on trying to bring people back to court with non-punitive conditions. Um, the court has held for a long time that jail is not considered punishment, right? Pre-trial incarceration is considered an administrative regulatory function um, to ensure people come back to court. But I think the facade of that falls flat when you realize that people are incarcerated in literally the exact same conditions and exact same institution. There are people who are held in jail pretrial at the Suffolk County House of Correction, and they are also serving sentences in cells on different units in that exact same facility under the exact same rules of conduct. Um, to suggest that that is an administrative function and not a punishment uh, may be true legally, but is not true in reality for the people who are in that situation. And so our argument is that we should be doing everything in our power to bring people back to court without coercive conditions, especially when they are presumed innocent under the law. Because enacting pretrial punishment, number one, has tremendous racially disparity, racial disparities, but also number two, um, is not the way to build a system that is serving people in the most humane and uh, constitutional ways. So that's my answer to Dave's question. Um, I realize we're short on time and I don't wanna uh, bore you with all of the numbers, but suffice it to say, <laughs> um, I'm gonna move forward a little bit and just show a couple of other things before we move on to our other panelists. So one of the things I've mentioned in passing was we did this little spot check about the reasons for ordering bail forms. And here are two real reasons for ordering bail forms that were observed um, in, January of 2018, so that's about you know five months after Brangen was decided, and in September of 2018, so that's a year after Brangen was decided. And these forms, as you can see, the very first box on the forms, these are both Boston Municipal Court Central Division forms, um, is the nature, uh, is a, excuse me, on the new form. This is the old form on the left. So this, this case was, again, 2018 arraignment, and um, Brangen had been decided in, in August of 2017, and still the, the financial resources of the defendant is the fourth checkbox on the old form and is not checked, right? So the, the judge has not recorded anywhere that um, she did in fact consider the defendant's financial resources, which is the very first requirement of Franken, let alone that this particular bail amount that was set of $300, why it was necessary um, and whether uh, any alternative non-financial conditions would be sufficient to assure return to court. None of that is recorded on this form. 
on the form on the right, you see that the defendant's financial resources was moved up to be the very first box on the new form after Brangen, once the trial court released in about April of 2018. Um, but again, that, that box is not checked here on this form. And in fact, the judge, if you look towards the bottom of the form, has crossed out some of the statutory language on the form and also not checked the box next to it. So we're just seeing um, some real, it's, it's not, genuine adherence to, to the law, to the spirit of the law, or to the actual text of the law um, among some of the practice in the courts. I, again, I'm going to skip ahead because of time and just pivot to talking about dangerousness a little bit. So as you were seeing in those numbers, as the use of bail was going down slightly, the, the use of dangerousness is going up. And this comes from a live dangerousness dashboard that is maintained by the Massachusetts Trial Court on their website. Um, and so these are the first half of this screen. The jurisdiction is the Boston Municipal and District Court. So these are all the dangerousness hearings that were requested by prosecutors in fiscal year 2018, quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four, same thing 2019, same thing 2020. So you can see that pretty consistently in each quarter as compared to the year prior, um, the, the numbers have gone up. We're seeing more dangerousness hearings across the Commonwealth. And the same thing is true in both Superior and District Court. And I'm going to um, pop out of the presentation for a second just to show you that live dangerousness dashboard. Um, so this is what the dashboard looks like. I hope you all can see it. <laughs> um, and you can see the breakdown by county. And what's pretty obvious is that some counties, for example, Essex County, um, uses dangerousness hearings at a staggering rate compared to the other counties in the Commonwealth. So Essex County had 792 dangerousness hearings in district courts so far in 2020, compared to 26 dangerousness hearings in Suffolk County over that same period. Um, so in some ways that may reflect uh, use of the, the use of bail as a proxy for dangerousness in the counties that are underutilizing dangerousness, but it also may reflect that there are some prosecuting offices that are utilizing dangerousness far more than would actually be necessary um, to assure return to court and to assure the safety of the community. Um, this, this dashboard is available publicly and we can send out the link afterwards if you want to poke around. You can get really granular data about um, each quarter and each prior year. It goes back to 2018 so far, but the trial court is constantly updating these with new information. This was last updated about two months ago. Um, and just to further emphasize this point about initial release decisions and where you see the pivot from people being held subject to bail to people being held without bail, you can see it pretty dramatically in, in the cases where there's uh, the most serious charge is either felony in superior court final jurisdiction or um, any felony charge that has joint jurisdiction, right? You see in held subject to bail before Brangen was decided that brown bar was at 34% and it's now down to 28%, but you see a commensurate increase in people who are being held without bail. Um, and that same thing has happened for most felony charges, it seems like overall. <clears throat> so what are we seeing in incarceration and COVID-19? Um, and how should we approach pretrial detention differently? So one thing I wanna mention is that uh, on Friday, there was released, sorry about that pop up. Um, <clears throat> there was released some statistics by the Supreme Judicial Court um, <clears throat> where between the issuance of the SJC order in CPCS versus the Massachusetts Trial Court at the end of April and May 25th, there were 1,800 releases from county facilities statewide. 
and we have seen a 2.53% re-arrest rate over that period. So 1,800 people were released who were being held pre-trial, and 97.5% of them have not been re-arrested on a new charge. Right? In fact, data show us overall that the number of people who are released um, who have a new charge while they are out pending uh, adjudication on the prior charge is vanishingly small, so much so that uh, researchers on pretrial risk assessments have suggested that they are deeply inaccurate and can't accurately predict um, any likelihood of future criminal activity. My final point before I wrap up, and I apologize to the co-panelists for taking so long on these data, but <clears throat> one thing that these um, <clears throat> panelists are gonna to talk to you about is pending legislation to fix some of uh, what are seen as flaws or, or loopholes in our existing pretrial release and detention framework. Um, and this bill was introduced by the governor in January of 2019. And I just wanna flag some of our serious concerns at the Houston Institute with the bill. So one thing is that we think it's a, a real affront to constitutional rights that we see um, the language in the bill that would allow for people pretrial to be punished for already punished conduct, prior criminal activity, or for possible but statistically unlikely future conduct. Um, based on our existing racial disparities in the law, we're seriously concerned that people will continue to conflate um, threat with um, black and brown, as is an implicit bias that we all hold because of um, stereotypes that are fed to us through our media and through our society, uh, and that we see reflected in the fact that people of color are at enhanced penalty at every stage of the criminal legal system in the Commonwealth. And finally, that um, it creates new power for bail magistrates to consider dangerousness when setting bail at a police station um, or setting conditions of release at a police station. And as already discussed a little bit, bail magistrates tend to um, be very unaccountable uh, to any authority uh, in reviewing their decision making. Although, of course, there is an arraignment the next day, but even a night in jail can be absolutely devastating to someone who then loses their job or, or has any other number of significant health externalities that flow from that decision to keep somebody incarcerated um, pending accusation. So I now will open it up to David to take it from here. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much, Katie. Uh, so first, I just need to say, uh, I'm so glad to be here again. I love being uh, part of the BBA uh, criminal law section. I've met some incredible people here. I love that we're a forum for uh, discussing issues with nuance and detail and bringing in real experts. And it's a very valuable experience. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I need to flag up front that I am appearing here today as a BBA member. Uh, I do not represent and what I'm about to articulate does not represent my former boss, the Secretary of Public Safety, uh, or the office that I currently work for. So with that uh, caveat out of the way, I sort of wanted to take you to um, uh, the very uh, granular um, world that we're looking at here. The architecture, um, can everybody see this? The, the architecture we're looking at here is really two parts. There's the 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 actual statutory scheme, which is designed by the legislature and is uh, basically full of objective measures. And then there is the subjective role, which are choices that are made uh, in the case of dangerousness, largely by uh, prosecutors in terms of whether they should or should not elect uh, to seek uh, a dangerousness hearing. And then with judges to make a determination of whether the Commonwealth has carried its burden of clear and convincing evidence that there is no other 
condition of release that would safely guarantee the safety of the community or a particular person. So the first part is an objective question. That is, is this person charged with a 58A eligible offense? And it's a yes or no question. It's a pure law question. And this giant paragraph you're looking at here uh, is, is what we have to work with in the current 58A statute. So I want to break that down a little bit. Um, first off, the way this was originally designed, the way it was drafted, there was a residual clause. This one in the middle that says any other felony that by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force against the person of another may result. That language, uh, which has been suspect now for a couple of years, has been deemed void for vagueness by the SJC. And I'm not here to dispute that. There's a whole line of cases that come from the US Supreme Court as well that suggest this is the legally right outcome. Uh, what I wanna talk about is where this leaves us and whether this means the legislature should now take some action to clarify uh, what should be done now that this provision has been struck down. So what's left in the 58A statute then are two parts. The force clause, which covers most crimes that people think of as violent crimes, but as you'll see, not all, and then an array of enumerated offenses, which are crimes which may not have as a pure element the use of force against another person, but which are so inherently dangerous that they belong on this list. Critical to keep in mind as we go through these, none of these require that people be detained pretrial as dangerous. In fact, the vast majority of people that are charged with all of these crimes are not deemed dangerous. Uh, all this does is allow the Commonwealth to move for a hearing at which it then has a high burden. If it does not appear on this list, the Commonwealth is barred from hearing. And this is a point that I'm gonna be hitting in a few areas. So what's left, what's missing when you take out this force clause uh, and the enumerated crimes? Even though the force clause makes reference to threats, it seems to not notice that in Massachusetts, the threatening to commit a crime statute, uh, which is a bread and butter statute in Massachusetts, is classified as a misdemeanor. And it is a misdemeanor even if the object crime is a very serious crime, like rape or murder or mayhem. If somebody makes a highly credible threat to commit one of these violent crimes, even if they've done that exact crime before, uh, it remains a misdemeanor, and that is the law of Massachusetts. And if it's a misdemeanor threat, then it is not 58A eligible, and that means the Commonwealth cannot move for pretrial detention, even if the court would be, uh, even if there's substantial evidence and it's a compelling case. Um, what else is missing? Well, civil rights violations. If a white man burns a cross just across the street from a black family's home, and he tells them they're not welcome in the neighborhood, he has committed a crime in Massachusetts. But incredibly, this is classified as a misdemeanor, so long as no one is physically harmed. Obviously, there's a lot of harm that comes from cross burning, even if no one is burned by the flames. The point is not to burn people. The point is to terrify them. Well, arson is specifically mentioned in the 58A statute, but this doesn't count as an arson under state law or even a malicious burning because the person who's burning the cross built the cross himself out of his own wood. He's not burning someone else's two by fours. Uh, and so uh, it does not qualify there. Uh, it is not intimidation, even though in the colloquial sense, we would of course say this is intimidation because our state intimidation statute requires that the victim is a witness uh, to some previous crime or have some other special protected status like being uh, a judge or a juror uh, or a defense attorney. Uh, just being an innocent family does not bring you under the protections of the state intimidation statute. So even if you, this person uh, has a prior record of racially motivated violence, they are not even eligible for a hearing. 
Uh, and it seems to me that this is wrong. What else is missing? A whole host of crimes against children uh, are missing from this list. And they're missing for a particular reason, is that, and that is that even though our law recognizes that these are very serious, profound crimes with a terrible impact on victims and society, there is no element of the use of force. And so it doesn't fit the force clause. If somebody uh, lures a child into doing something that they otherwise wouldn't do with a promise or an animal or candy, that is not the use of force as a technical matter. And I respect that people who represent these clients have an obligation to make a good argument and to be zealous advocates. And if I was a zealous advocate for these people, I would be making these same arguments because these legal loopholes are real. These are legally good arguments. But as a matter of policy architecture, what I'm suggesting is there's a loophole. Uh, and just as it's uh, the defense attorney's job to identify and exploit those loopholes on behalf of a client, it's the legislature's job and it's policymakers' job to identify those loopholes and close them uh, where they don't serve uh, the larger interests of the Commonwealth. What else? Uh, child enticement. Child enticement is a felony punishable by up to five years in state prison. Um, I don't need to go through all the horrible details here, but suffice it to say, uh, this man in a Massachusetts county uh, tried to lure a 14-year-old girl, who he thought was a 14-year-old girl. He placed an advertisement looking for uh, underage uh, people to have uh, sexual interactions with. Uh, he ended up being arrested in a sting operation by an undercover detective who recovered uh, graphic sexual conversations from his phone with other apparent minors, a discussion of past and anticipated future acts. But the uh, SJC held uh, that child enticement was not a predicate offense. And the reason why is, uh, while it's obviously serious and it puts people at risk, force is not an element. And, it, and the residual clause is no longer present. And that means it is not available even for a hearing. Uh, this man, uh, after he was released on a cash bail, after the Commonwealth 211-3 motion was denied, uh, was arrested in New Jersey, uh, trying to find a child he thought would be eight years old. Um, sexual assaults against parties who cannot consent. Again, these are all very serious crimes with substantial available state prison penalties. But uh, as the SJC said in the recent Sione case, the fact that a child is incapable of consenting to sexual intercourse is relevant not to whether there's an element of force in statutory rape, but instead as to whether consent is a defense to the crime. And if you look on the right-hand side uh, of this panel, uh, what you can see is that um, the court there specifically disclaimed that it was making uh, a policy judgment. Um, the judge wrote, as will be apparent from the discussion below, the court is not finding that Barnes is not dangerous or that the public safety purposes of Section 58A would not be served by holding him or that the legislature should not include it as a predicate, but simply that they had not uh, and that he felt bound by the law uh, not to allow uh, a detention hearing to go forward. Um, deriving support from a minor prostitute, um, Jodie Foster almost won uh, Best Supporting Actress for this role. Um, deriving support for a minor prostitute is a very serious crime. It has a minimum penalty of five years imprisonment. It's eligible for up to life imprisonment. Uh, and I think anybody, when they're being honest, can understand that uh, a juvenile who's in a sex trafficking environment can face grave danger when somebody who has been trafficking her is released. Um, especially if he has reason to believe she's been cooperating with authorities. But again, deriving support from a minor prostitute 
is not a forced crime as a matter of law. Uh, even if uh, the prosecution were to charge uh, the trafficker as an accessory to the rape of a child, the rape of a child would also not be a forced crime because it's committed against a minor who is incapable of consenting rather than somebody who is uh, forcibly abducted. Uh, conspiracy attempt and solicitation. I think this is uh, largely an oversight, but it's a major oversight. The 58A statute does cover attempted forced crimes like attempted murder, at least it tries to. Um, but proving attempt in Massachusetts is notoriously difficult. We use a different standard than many other states. Um, and in the Hamill case, a 2001 case, the appeals court found that it wasn't an attempt, not sufficiently a legal attempt, even where the defendant solicited two hitmen to commit four murders, made partial payment, described the intended victims, and drew sketches of the homes of three of the victims. Uh, that was not enough to get you to attempt. Now, today you would say uh, at least it would be solicitation. And thanks to a change in the statute that happened in 2018, uh, Solicitation to commit murder now is treated as a serious crime in Massachusetts. Prior to that, believe it or not, it had been a misdemeanor to solicit the assassination of somebody else. Now that's treated as a serious crime, but solicitation still would not qualify. Uh, even if they were real hitmen and not, as in the Hamill case, uh, an undercover police officer, and you were able to apprehend them and charge them all with conspiracy to commit murder, incredibly, the current state of the law would say, well, the actual murder is not an element of the crime of conspiracy as we all know, so I guess they're ineligible for dangerousness here. And if they all happen to live in the town and they didn't have a history of defaults, you'd have to go through your normal non-dangerousness Brangen analysis and say, well, what basis do we have to hold this person on a, on a flight risk basis? Uh, and that doesn't seem right to me. It seems that if you, if you catch somebody in the act of trying to procure uh, the assassination of another person, you should at least have a right to have a hearing to articulate the danger they may pose to that person in police. Um, trafficking in firearms. I need, don't need to go through all of this, but uh, people know that uh, a large majority of the crime guns in Massachusetts come in from outside our Commonwealth, from states that have uh, much looser uh, regulation and licensing of weapons. Uh, the legislature has responded, I think, uh, strongly by strengthening our firearms trafficking statute. But again, because the uh, core of those crimes is the transfer and sale of weapons between consenting but criminal parties. Uh, Large-scale trafficking in firearms is considered a non-dangerous crime for 58A purposes. Um, animal abuse to exert control. Uh, this actually is, is pretty serious. If you think about a scenario where somebody who is, say, a long-term domestic abuser is torturing or killing a beloved pet of somebody else, any honest person would say, all our research says that this is a profound danger sign, uh, that there's a strong correlation between intentionally harming animals uh, and harming people and the people that love them. Um, Massachusetts law treats this as a very serious crime. It's, it's eligible for up to seven years in state prison. And yet, because an animal is not a person, force against an animal does not constitute force against a person and is ineligible even for a hearing. Um, Scenario I want to run through here, uh, the defendant who is a longtime customer at a restaurant starts to begin uh, stalking uh, a server. If it was the crime of stalking, it would be 58A eligible, but the crime of stalking has as an element that there be a verbalized threat to do physical harm. And in the real world, 
lots of what we think of as stalking does not include that threat. It can include leering and creepy staring and following without someone verbalizing, I'm going to hurt you. Uh, in this case, uh, the defendant asked the victim on a date. The victim declines and his demeanor changes. He begins to stare at her in a hateful manner. Um, on one occasion, he's alleged to have slashed her tires. On two other occasions, he pours battery acid into the gasoline tank of her motor vehicle. And she actually captures this on camera and notifies the police. He's charged with malicious destruction of property, uh, which is a felony, punishable by up to 10 years. Uh, and it has to be motivated by cruelty, hostility, or revenge. So there's a strong danger nexus there, especially in this kind of stalking context. But because it's not a force element crime, prosecutors can't move to hold the defendant under 58A. Imagine after he's convicted of malicious destruction, the defendant serves six months for the battery acid. Uh, and then after he's released, police receive a tip that the subject is building a bomb. They obtain and execute a search warrant for his home and they catch him in the act of building an improvised explosive device. He's then charged with violating chapter 266, section 102, which again is a serious crime, but it, it again does not satisfy the requirements of the force clause and the residual clause is no longer operative. So he can't be charged, uh, he can't receive a dangerousness hearing, he can't be charged with attempted murder because it's not sufficiently close to the last act to just build a bomb. So he's not eligible for a hearing. And if he's a longtime resident of the town and his only prior record is for pouring battery acid in this victim's car, then the Brangen analysis seems very likely to have him released. Um, this is a real fact pattern drawn from the case that's cited at the bottom, uh, Commonwealth versus Caruso. Uh, the only difference in the fact pattern I've laid out is that in the real world, the police never received a tip that this man was building a bomb. He did build the bomb and he used it to blow the, the waitress. Uh, to pieces with a package bomb that he left at her house. Um, so those are, I think, that's an illustration of some of the, the shortcomings in the current architecture. I want to emphasize that um, none of these, uh, none of these changes, adding these, adding these statutes to the eligible list, none of it would require that everybody be held uh, pretrial. It would still be the Commonwealth's burden to prove that somebody was so dangerous by clear and convincing evidence that there were no available conditions of release that could guarantee somebody's safety. Uh, and it seems to me that the scenario we're in right now is that in many of the, the scenarios I've laid out, uh, any honest person and any judge would say, I find this situation compelling, but I am barred from doing anything about it by the state of the law. And when we're in that situation, uh, I think that's a call that, that something has to be done. So. That's it for me. Meredith, over to you. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Meredith Reeves. Um, and uh, like um, David said, I am a trial attorney with um, the Committee for Public Counsel Services. Um, I am not affiliated with the BBA, but I'm very happy um, to have been invited to be part of today. Um, you might have seen my internet just cut out, so um, I'm not certain. Um, it appears to be working right now, but um, if it does cut out again um, and anyone has any follow-up questions, we are a little bit short on time at this point. It's 10 of 1, um, but if anyone does have any um, follow-up questions, whether it be because I don't have time to get through everything or um, because 
I disappear again, um, I welcome you to um, contact me directly. And I, I would just ask, um, perhaps given that if, um, Dave, you'd be able to just put my email um, in the chat just, just in case. Um, I'll, I'll begin just by addressing um, a few things about um, ADA Solette's um, presentation about um, the Dangerous Persons Bill. Um, and that is first and foremost, and, and most generally, um, I think all um, criminal defense practitioners, and, and I would hope that um, most uh, prosecutors would agree that um, just because um, there is behavior that can be identified as um, morally abhorrent or horrifying or wrong, um, that doesn't necessarily put it in a category um, of people who should be held um, pre-trial, doesn't necessarily even put um, certain behavior um, in a category of criminality. Um, and I think it is um, very easy um, and in fact a, a very human reaction to hear um, certain um, aspects of the anecdotes that um, David just shared um, and, and be appalled, um, whether it be as, as a person or as a public safety or from a public safety perspective. Um, but it's important to note, um, I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that those acts or accusations of those acts um, are a, a reasonable basis or something we're willing to accept as a constitutional basis to lock somebody up before they have been found guilty of anything, before they have admitted every, anything, and simply um, on the basis of an accusation. That cross-burning example is upsetting for anyone to hear. That dog was adorable. There are ways um, to tie pretty much any criminal accusation to dangerousness. Um, that's pretty much why everything is illegal. If you take, I, I could, there isn't one single statute that could be thrown at a criminal practitioner where they wouldn't be able to articulate uh, why ultimately um, a violation of that statute would not put certain people or the community in danger. That's pretty much why everything is illegal. Um, but there is an important distinction to be drawn um, between people who do dangerous things and people who are so dangerous by virtue of having done those things or other facts and circumstances about them um, that mean that there are literally no conditions of release that can possibly be fashioned that would ensure the safety of the community or the victim while their case is pending. Um, and just as um, there are um, what I'm sure were um, confusing and shocking examples um, in uh, Mr. Solet's presentation um, about if you take certain aspects of the existing so-called loopholes in the dangerousness statute um, to their sort of absurd conclusions, there exist too um, those same absurdities if you carry um, the very outermost limits of um, this House bill um, to their extremes. We're talking about a bill where anytime you're charged with, anytime someone is charged with a crime that carries jail time, which includes operating after a suspended license, which includes shoplifting crimes, which includes simple possession of, of a controlled substance, if they have a conviction for what's considered a dangerous crime, which 
um, and I welcome David to correct me if I'm wrong, but um, under the definition of the dangerous crime um, that I read in this bill would include threats, would include simple assault, um, would include um, an OUI first. And those are people who it strains credulity to believe need to be held without bail, that a judge could not fashion any conditions of release that would ensure everyone's safety. And I, I feel that um, this is already an incredibly overused um, statute. I happen to practice in Essex County, um, which um, if you saw the um, stats that um, Katie shared on her slide, which are accessible on the trial court website, um, you can see that this statute is already used incredibly frequently. And the last thing that I can imagine contributing to the pursuit of justice is expanding that statute um, to allow even more people to be held. Um, it is on paper a very exacting standard. Um, it's a two-pronged hearing where the first, both by clear and convincing evidence, the first thing um, is that the prosecutor has to convince the court um, by clear and convincing evidence that um, the person is dangerous. Um, I have been doing this not for um, as long as plenty of other people, but I have um, been practicing um, criminal law in Essex County for about nine years, and I have had one 58A where the judge has not found dangerousness. Um, this is a county where I get um, new 58 days multiple times a month. And in nine years, I've had one instance where the judge has not found that the person is dangerous. And that includes a lot of people whose cases are dismissed, a lot of people who are ultimately acquitted at trial. Um, the second prong is, of course, um, as, as we all know, um, whether or not there are any conditions of release that could ensure the safety of the victim in the community. Um, and the standard for that is, again, sounds good on paper. Um, has the prosecutor proved by clear and convincing evidence that there are, is literally no set of conditions can, that can be fashioned that would keep the community and the victim safe? Um, and I try and say that as many times as I can when I'm making this argument, because truly that should be an incredibly narrow category of persons for whom there is literally nothing you could put in place that would keep everybody safe. And that includes a lot of those horrifying examples that David gave. Um, I, I will, I don't want to um, use all of my time talking um, just about the bill, but I, I would suggest that from my perspective, um, there are a lot of other um, additional problems with the overbreadth of the bill um, in particular. Um, I take issue with um, a contention that there aren't already dire consequences um, for the violation of any pretrial conditions that are set. Um, when people are given um, conditions such as remain drug and alcohol free or stay on a curfew, things like that, when they are found to have violated, the prosecutor moves for revocation of those conditions and they go back to jail until trial. Um, in terms of the um, so-called loophole that's brought up um, in the bill about um, requiring a court to issue a warrant before people can be arrested for a violation of those conditions, um, I would point out that um, in a lot of um, victim cases where um, the condition 
that is most concerning to the Commonwealth and often the court um, is contact or attempted contact or um, proximity to a victim. Um, those are situations where most often the defendant is monitored with a GPS bracelet, uh, where Elmo issues a warrant, um, it does not go through the court, and the person is arrested often within an hour or two without any um, judicial mechanism or without any judicial intervention. So um, I think that to say that there are often no consequences or that um, there's this delay of having to go to court and seek a warrant um, is in some ways, or at least based on my personal experience, misleading. Some of the other concerns that I see in the bill um, are very burdensome or um, or other mechanisms that really bring up some privacy concerns, but I'm not going to um, spend our very limited amount of time sort of talking about that. Um, in particular, with regard to the um, facts and circumstances that the Commonwealth might lay out to justify adding trespass or threats um, as predicates for a 58A, um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, how offensive that is to our system of ordered liberty, which prevents us from incarcerating people or charging people for things they haven't done yet. Um, and when we're talking about um, situations where trespass or proximity to a particular, presumably meaning a proximity to a particular individual is what um, the Commonwealth would use to argue um, that by clear and convincing evidence, this person is dangerous um, and should be held without bail. We are talking, to be clear, about a situation where someone would be held without bail um, until their trial in all probability, even without the change proposed here, most people who are held on 58A are held all the way until their trial because of the limitations of Rule 36B2. Um, and in situations where it is a concerning trespass or something of that nature, we are talking about holding them without bail, um, with no opportunity for process um, in situations where they haven't actually done the thing we're afraid of yet, nor is there any even clear and convincing evidence of that. Um, I would just bring up um, in terms of 58A, I realize my time is pretty much done and I'm very grateful that Katie got through pretty much everything I wanted to say about Brangan. So um, just two more things, if I may. Um, the constitutional considerations um, of 58A as, they, as 58A even exists now without even um, contemplating adding anything in um, about uh, or from this dangerous persons bill. I think some of those things are ripe for litigation. Um, there has been some um, very fruitful litigation in, in 2019 that David alluded to in terms of predicate offenses. Um, I think the um, modifications to or the um, limitations on um, the due process afforded during a 58A hearing that were added um, in the domestic violence bill a few years ago um, are also ripe for litigation, um, including most specifically um, the requirement that if a defense attorney wishes to summons a complaining witness to a 58A hearing, 
it requires judicial approval and um, a certain demonstration of what they expect to elicit um, from that. As far as I know, that has not yet been litigated and in my opinion um, is uh, right for a constitutional challenge where the Mendoza case clearly states um, that the only reason 58A survives constitutional muster is because of the robust nature of the hearing um, that defendants are supposedly entitled to. Um, the last thing is just responsive to a chat um, that was given or that was submitted rather in terms of um, co post COVID and, and or post pandemic or pre pandemic numbers. Um, as far as I know, um, well, I, I personally don't have any specific stats um, on how bail requests have changed or how bail requests have been made. Um, I, I know from individual prosecutors that they have um, been been directed without um, specific parameters to sort of have a lighter touch with bail. I personally have not seen any change in the practice of filing 58 A's. Um, and that is borne out um, in at least um, a collection of data from within CPCS that was done um, by attorneys in charge about six weeks ago. Um, Essex County um, had still um, been filing 58 days essentially at the same rate. Um, I haven't, I'm not a statistician, so I haven't been able to go through um, those stats and sort of compare them to the trial court stats in a way that's going to be meaningful to anybody. Um, but there's certainly um, no demonstration of a change in 58 um, day practice, at least um, among uh, the, the counties that were solicited um, for that survey. Um, the last thing that I would say, and I, I know I'm pushing the time here, I apologize. The last thing that I would say is um, that although um, a lot of these a lot of the, the cases that end up being sort of an impetus for um, changes and expansions of 58A laws um, are compelling and tragic and horrible. They are not the majority of defendants, and they are certainly not the majority of defendants who are released on conditions. The far more common instance is someone who is released on conditions, often very stringent conditions, abides by all of those, all of those conditions, shows up, and goes to trial or takes a plea or gets their case dismissed. And that includes cases where the, the factual allegations were very strong against a particular defendant. This is not simply people who were falsely accused, which I would hope everybody in this room could, could get angry about, someone being held without bail when it turns out that the accusation was completely false. But we're talking about allegations, very, very serious allegations of domestic abuse, sexual abuse, robberies, violence, things like that, where there is demonstrably credible evidence that the person committed those crimes by virtue of the fact that they're either convicted or they take a plea, and they have been out abiding by all of these conditions the entire time that their case has been pending, one, two years even. Um, so the fact of a commission of a violent crime, I think has to be, or, the, or a dangerous crime rather, has to be distinguished from the category of people who must be held without bail um, prior to trial. And my concern about um, some of the narrative that surrounds bills like this is that those issues are conflated. Um, so I have a lot more to say and I, I welcome anybody to contact me. And I did put your email in the answer to a question. Um, 
so everybody can see it in those answered questions. And I just want to thank our speakers for taking the time today. Uh, I thought that was really great and educational. And we are right up against our time limit. So unfortunately, we can't uh, solicit more questions. But thank you all. Thank you for listening. Thank you, the three of you, for participating. And I think that ends the webinar. Thank you all very much.